Well, thanks for having me here today. It's a real buzz for me to just meet different Christians around the, the countryside as I travel and to be here with you guys is a, a real blessing, so thanks for having me. I'm going to have a lot of the Bible verses up on the slide, but it's good if you look at the Bible as well. So have your Bible open, but realise that the, the verses I'm referring to will be up on there. And you'll appreciate that you can't say everything in one sermon on every passage. So there'll be things that I don't cover. And if you want to know more from me, please come and talk to me later about what I've said. I'll warn you that my introduction's a bit long. My second point is longer than the... Sorry, my first point's longer than the second point, okay? So just in case you think, wow, this is a long first point. What's he going to do with the second one? Don't worry, I'll try and finish in time uh, as a normal sermon, okay. You know, modernity was a period where people believed that nothing lasts forever. And post-modernity came along and encouraged to society to test every value and every moral that we had. Now, that's a good thing to test things rather than just accept things. But they came along, that was post-modernity. And they, didn't, they said, don't just accept every family value, but test everything. And at that time, we actually shifted from something like uh, caring... Oh, sorry, I've gone to the wrong slide. Caring for the group to caring for the individual. And that's what uh, postmodernism did. Now, you and I live now in what we call a post-truth society. And post-truth, I don't know how to describe it except to say something like this. I think post-truth means that we're so grown up that we don't need truth. And we just don't need it. It can be whatever you want it to be because we're grown up. We're bigger than the truth. And that's what a post-truth society, or that's what we're living in now. And post-truth society says that your opinions are as valid as the facts. And that's the world we live in now. When John 10.1 says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some in our society are therefore going to say this. Is that just Jesus' opinion? Oh, he believes he's the truth. That's what it is. It's just what he thinks about himself. It doesn't mean he's really the truth. It's just what he thinks about himself. But for you and I, who are Christians, we come here and we say Jesus is the truth. And when we say that, we say he's the embodied truth. In other words, he's reality. He's real life. He is what life is all about. A.C. Crowling, who is no friend of Christians, and this is a quote that he says. So he's anti-Christian, but this is what he says. The fabric of democracy, the whole post-truth phenomena is about my opinion is worth more than the facts. Sorry. He says, the fabric of democracy is threatened because of uh, the post-truth phenomena which is about my opinions is worth more than the facts, it's about how I feel about things, it's terribly narcissistic. Now that's from a non-Christian, and that's the world we live in. A post-truth ideology is about preserving your happy is zone, your pleasure zones. So in other words, whatever makes you feel happy, whatever makes you feel pleasant, that's what you believe, that's what you live for. And so it's, it's about saying, you 
You let me be me, and I tell you what, I'll let you be you. So whoever you say you are, I'll let you be you, but you just as long as you let me be who I am. And it's all about your pleasure. And it's all about you defining who you are. And of course, when you define who you are, you do not deny yourself the pleasure or the happiness. And in fact, you must avoid pain at all cost. That's the society we live in. No one likes to feel pain. No one likes to be unhappy. And that's what post-truth encourages us to do. Post-truth is really like a smorgasbord of food, isn't it? It's a smorgasbord of food where you choose the food that you love best. You choose the things that make you happy. You choose the things that will not cause you to suffer anything. And so, like a smorgasbord, you may eat the things that aren't good for you. You may choose the things that aren't really good for you. And one of those things might be you just reject every value of Jesus Christ. That's the truth, post-truth society we lived in. We live in. You might reject what is necessary. I think our post-truth society is really a babble of confusion, if you ask me. Well, it's nothing new. For 400, year, 400 BC, Socrates had the same problem. He battled with truth. They said, whatever works, pragmatism is good, do that. Socrates said, no, that will kill the virtues of society. They killed him. They killed him because he wanted to uphold the virtues of society. That was 400 BC. In the first century, Jesus was with Pilate, and Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And what did Pilate say? What is truth? What is it? And then you come 400 AD in Augustine, he battled with truth with the skeptics who said there was no absolute truth. And what did he say? You know, if you've got two plus two equals four, you've got one absolute truth or that opens the door for the, the absolute truth because you have a universal truth. But he had his battle too. Our battle is with subjective versus objective. Is there an objective truth out there that's real? Or is it all just in here and what I believe and what I want to take? That's our battle. But Jesus in this chapter, he tells us in verse 1, I tell you the truth. And in verse 6, he talks about uh, it being figurative language. But that does not mean that it's not the truth. He talks in figurative language. That's just a way of saying a parable. But it's a parable that talks and teaches the truth. And the very first truth I believe that Jesus is teaching us is that there is one way in. Oh, sorry, one entrance. Shepherd, in Jesus' day, put their sheep in a community and they hired a guard or a guard keeper or a gateman to look after the sheep and he was like a security system. And he knew who the shepherd was and he'd let the shepherd come and call out his sheep. Now the shepherd... They, they had a call for their sheep because they'd all be together. All these different shepherds would put them all in one pen and the shepherd would come out and, I don't know, let's say he called these sheep, his call was, abra, abra, abra. and all these sheep would follow that guy. And the other shepherd that come in and said, huck, and all the sheep that knew him would follow him. And that's what they did. And when you look at verse 7, Jesus actually says this. He says, I'm the gate. And in verse 11 and 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. So when you have Jesus saying, I'm the gate, I'm the good shepherd, he's saying, I'm the guard, 
I'm the way into the fold. And as the good shepherd, he's saying, I know my sheep. But the point that Jesus is firstly teaching us through this this parable is that there's only one way in. There's only one way in. And in verse 9, it is clear that Jesus is talking about salvation. There's only one way to get into heaven. There's only one way to be secure. There's only one way to reach eternal life, and that's through Jesus, the gate. Now, I heard of a boy who had Down syndrome, and he was a guard at an army barracks. And the reason they chose him as a guard for the army barracks was because he was so meticulous at his job. Now, if you wanted to get into the army barracks and you had no identification tag, you couldn't get in. The colonel's wife pulled up. And little Johnny had known the colonel's wife and met her many, many times. She didn't have her identification tag. And she said, Johnny, come on, you know who I am. Let me in. And he refused. He said, no, ma'am, no identification tag. You cannot possibly be getting to the barracks. She had to ring the colonel up. The colonel had to bring the identification tag down to let him in. Even if the colonel said, let her in, Johnny, he would not because the identification tag had to be seen. Now let's, let's remember that, and let's not think that Jesus is going to let anyone into heaven any other way but through him. He is the only way into heaven. He is the only way that a person can be saved. You know, don't let people say this, but my uncle's a minister. My cousin is a good Christian. But he's such a good bloke. No, there's one way in. And it's through Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse 9, the saved sheep or people are not trapped. But the expression says they come in And as they come in, they go out. And the idea is that they go out into much grazing, if you like. Now, remember that Old Testament passage we read about uh, Moses taking Israel out of the land and in? In that passage, uh, you'll notice that they're going out and then in. But when Jesus is talking in John's Gospel, he's saying, you're going to go in, but the way you go in is, like to go the, is, is the way to go out. Uh, you know that in Jesus' name, Josh, or, sorry, Joshua in Greek means Jesus. And Moses said, give them a shepherd so they will be not like sheep without a shepherd. So this Jesus character takes his story up and he is the fulfilment of this whole story about Moses and Joshua. So this story we're reading now is all about us coming in but going out. It's us coming in to the the promised land in a sense, into salvation so that we're assured of our eternity. So the way in is the way out. Let me try and illustrate, illustrate it like this. Have you ever been into a house that looks pretty ordinary, 
but when you get in, it's magnificent. I went to a house that was a three-bedroom looking house on the outside. When I walked into the house, I walked over to the railing and that house suddenly just dropped down three stories. On the far wall over there was three stories of glass that overlooked the most magnificent view you could ever imagine. The walls that were three stories down on either side were completely filled with artwork that was original. Millions of dollars worth of art. Now this was about 20 years ago they told me it was worth a million, so now it's probably worth about 20 million in today's society. But when you walked into the house, it looked so small and ordinary, but when you went in, it it just opened up. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. When we go in to salvation, salvation doesn't trap us and hold us in. It opens up a whole brand new world to us. We see things that we've never seen before. It's like when Jesus says in John 14 verse 2, My Father's house has many rooms. When we come in, we go out. So the idea of going in and out is about quality and quantity. When you come into Jesus, you have everything that you will ever need. Your salvation, your eternal life. And if you have that, what else do you need? He provides everything that we'd ever need. Everything that we could ever want. In John 10.10, he says it's an abundant life. So I have to ask you, have you come in? If you haven't come into Jesus yet, can I encourage you to come in? Because when you come into him, he will open up your mind. You will see spiritual things. You will see eternity. No longer will you just be concerned about the, the opinions, the pleasures, the painless life. You'll start to live real life when you come into Jesus. You know, think for a moment of Jesus uh, and the... the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. At his arrest, they came to arrest him, the, uh, the guards, and he, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. And the guards took a step back and fell on their knees. When he's saying, I am, I am, I am, he's saying, I am the God of the Old Testament in flesh here now. How amazing is that? This is reality. This is real life. Remember Moses was said when he went into Egypt and he said, who will I say sent me? And what did God say? Tell them I am sent you. This is Jesus. He was the one who took Egypt out, oh, Israel out of Egypt. He's the one who's taking us out. He's the one who's calling people in to go out. He's the one that's opening up people's minds so they can understand the truth. I am the way in. Jesus is God in flesh. You know, in chapter 19 and 21, he goes back to chapter 8 and chapter 9 and he's really saying this because the Pharisees are saying he's possessed. And he's trying to tell them you're spiritually blind. 
you Pharisees are spiritually blind. You don't know the truth. You don't know anything. And, he, and that's why he has that blind man healed. It's the blind that see and it's the see that are, seeing that are blind. And we go back to that. He's not possessed. The devil has blinded the Pharisees' eyes. And the only way that that veil is lifted is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when you come into truth, you'll see all past those things. You'll see eternity. And once you see eternity, things of this world become shadows. That's why Kelly's gone to Japan. She's seen spiritual things that are far more important than things here and said, I'll go to Japan. And there might be someone else here ready to go. Let me turn to my second point. I'll be very much more quicker on this one. The good shepherd. Well, shepherd Jesus is unique, isn't he? He's good. We've seen that. He saves us. It's about eternal salvation. But in verse 3, he calls his sheep by name. I don't know if you noticed that, but he calls us by name. Jesus doesn't just look at you like a, a collection of people. When he says that he knows you by name, he says, I individually know each one of you. Now, in our country, we don't really uh, think about names that much, do we? You know, I'll tell you how I got my name. My name, I'm called Graham, right? Because my dad went down the pub and he said, I've got my fourth born and I don't know what to call him. And some stranger up the bar yelled out, Call him Graham! That's how I got my name. Now, in our country, we, we go, okay, who cares? It's just a name. But in the Bible, a name means everything, doesn't it? Moses was called what? Drawn out of the water. Because they drew him out of the water, so they named him that. Remember Naomi? Naomi's name mean ple- means pleasant. Remember she left the land with her husband and her two sons, and she comes back empty-handed. She's got Ruth, the Moabite woman, with her. And when she's coming back, everyone's going, Naomi's coming home, Naomi's coming home, because she's really the figure that's going to lead into the birth of the Saviour. It's important that she comes home. But when she comes home, she says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. See, names are everything in the Bible, not so for us. Remember Jonah? His name is Dove. I don't know if it was because he brought peace or because he flew away. I suspect it's because he flew away. But names aren't important to us, but they are in the Bible. They're very important. Jesus himself, his name means saviour. You know, when Jesus calls you by name, he knows you through and through. It's like he actually uh, comes up to you, gets your chest... You know how they do open heart surgery? Rips it open, looks into your heart. He knows you so well, closes his back up. But what I love about Jesus is I know you so well, I've looked into your heart, but I still call you to follow me. And when I look at my heart and my life and who I've been and what I've done and where I come from, I can't see why Jesus would bother calling me. And he's done it to each one of us, and he knows us by name. Isn't that incredible? You're not a collective bunch. You're individually known. You're never misunderstood by Jesus. And you know what? He knows all your pain, or your heartache, or your struggles, or your addictions. When you have that one extra two bit of wine, when someone slipped on the porn in the internet, 
He knows everything about you. And he knew everything about you before you even became, before he even called you, and yet he still called you. And you know, you might be sitting here now saying, oh, Jesus doesn't know me. He's forgotten. I've been here for a hundred years. Sorry, no one's been here that long. I know that. But he's forgotten me. No. He knows your name as clear as day from the time he first called you right until you comes home. You know, Jesus tenderly calls you by name and he says, follow me. You know, Jesus uh, loved and cared so much for us that he gave his life for us, didn't he? He said, I'll lay down my life for the sheep. I had a friend of mine who gave up his life for a 12-year-old girl. She was in a canoe and he was a leader of the youth group and her canoe toppled over and she went under in the water and the water was running fast and it was murky and he knew that she was in trouble. He jumped out of the canoe, swam in the murky water, somehow he found her, somehow he pushed her up to the surface, other people grabbed the girl, put her in a canoe, he was washed away. It happened on a good Easter Sunday. Straight away that day he was in to see the Lord. He gave up his life to save a 12-year-old daughter. And when I tell you that, you will go, that is heroic. That is courageous. He left behind his wife and three children. And I tell you that human story because that's no different to what Jesus did. He laid down his life because you are so important to him. He laid down his life. He was cursed by God. You know, Jesus walked all our lonely roads, judged and condemned, cursed by God for the very sins that I should be punished for. Let me conclude by saying this. Jesus actually says he has sheep from another pen. That's why uh, we send missionaries all around the globe, don't we? Because Jesus has sheep from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every type of people group. Doesn't matter how many there are. As Kelly lifts up Jesus' name in Japan, in the university, Jesus calls people by name to come in and follow him. As you go around here today in Canberra and you talk about Jesus, he has the opportunity of calling people in. But if we don't talk about him, if we don't lift him up, if we don't do that, then it won't happen. Let me ask you this, how, how do we know that Jesus is speaking the truth? And this is what we're told. In verse 3, he says, the sheep listen, listen to the shepherd's voice. In verse 4, they know his voice. In verse 5, they do not follow a stranger. In verse 8, they ignore robbers and thieves. Notice they're not interested in anything but the truth, the sheep. So every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, there are people just waiting to hear about the truth. They're not interested in every other bit of rubbish. They're not interested in the opinions and that. They just don't even know they want the truth, but they're looking for the truth. And you and I who have the truth need to tell them about Jesus so he can call them in. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Buddha himself said to his followers, you need to find a saviour. 
Buddha said that to his followers, you need to find a saviour and the saviour who will save you will have marks on his forehead, marks on his hands and marks on his feet. Can you believe that? Now most Buddhists don't know that. But why I'm telling you that is, I bet you you know new age people in Canberra who go, I like Buddha. You know, I'm a Buddhist myself. We're peaceful. We're kind. We're generous. We're loving. Buddha's all about love. That's me. Well, tell them the Buddha said you need to find a saviour. Did you know that? Now, I've got a magazine that's got that quote in it. If you want to get one of those off me later and I'll give it to you. Let me leave you with my last illustration. I think people are like shredded documents and our world is out there saying this. Put the pieces back together. But pick out the colours that bring you pleasure. That stop feeling the pain. And just live for here and now. The trouble is we can never put the document back together the way it should be on our own. Jesus came to give us life. And he puts the document back together. 